Hello, you're listening to the Religious Socialism Podcast, hosted by the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Sarah Nee, and last month my producer Devin and I went down to the southern tip of Brooklyn, to a neighborhood called Bay Ridge, to interview a fascinating person. His name is Qadir Aliotim, and he's a Palestinian Arab Lutheran minister who is running for city council in District 43, which includes several neighborhoods, one of which, Diker Heights, made the news for being the neighborhood with the highest percentage of Trump donors in New York City. So it might seem, particularly on paper, that Reverend Elliot Team has a steep hill ahead of him. There are four other Democrats and three Republicans running for this seat on September 12th, but Reverend Elliot Team has generated quite a media buzz and has thus far raised more money than everyone else, despite being the only candidate, or perhaps because he is the only candidate, who has publicly pledged not to take any money from real estate developers. He's also gotten quite a bit of buzz because he's one of the few candidates who's been endorsed by the DSA. So those of you who are part of the DSA already, you've probably read emails about him because the DSA has been emailing to raise funds and rally tons of volunteers for his campaign. And when Devin and I got there, his office was full of volunteers, so we actually had to conduct the interview outside and improvise a little bit. So stay tuned and listen to find out what the buzz is all about. Thank you so much for being with us, Reverend Ali Team, on this very hot <laughs> Wednesday morning. We are sitting outside your campaign office. Yes. And it's pretty busy, so we're actually sitting in an alleyway outside your office. Yeah, sorry about this. <laughs> we have a lot of volunteers occupying the space. A lot of volunteers, <laughs> a lot of them from the DSA. Many of them are from the DSA. So a little shout out to the DSA. Hey, for hey, hey, hey. Your volunteer DSA, troops. All the way. Yes. Well, we're excited to talk to you for the Religion and Socialism podcast. We interview a lot of faith activists in New York City about religion and politics and social justice and, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of socialism often. Okay. Um, but I want to start a little bit more sort of autobiographical before we get into your campaign and all that stuff. You know, when most people hear that you're Palestinian and an Arab, they might be a little surprised to hear you're also a Lutheran minister. Right. <laughs> How did you find that sense of calling, of vocation? Well, I uh, always grew up in the church, and after I graduated from high school, I felt a strong calling to become a minister, and that was one way I can continue to serve my people. I, I have Where did you grow up, just to clarify? I grew up in Bethlehem, in, in the West Bank, what is called the West Bank. Mm -hmm. I grew up in, in Bethlehem, Palestine. Mm -hmm. So I was born under the Israeli occupation. I grew up under the Israeli occupation, and all my life I saw that our people living uh, under control, oftentimes suffering from the outcome of the occupation. And I believe part of becoming a minister, I can help my people to uh, relieve their stress and their pain and to fight for uh, justice and peace in the Holy Land. And I noticed in one of your interviews you did a while ago, you talked about how your time that you spent imprisoned by the IDF in 1989 shaped the way you think about justice and reconciliation, which is, to me is very interesting because sometimes people leave those experiences feeling bitter or sort of angry. What, how did you go the other direction? Well, you know, my uh, experience in the prison was a very difficult experience. I mean, uh, I was uh, tortured every day. I was for 57 days in uh, solitary confinement by myself. Uh, for 57 days, I wasn't allowed to take a shower, change my clothes, shave, wash my face, brush my teeth. Mm. It was very harsh, difficult conditions that I lived in in the prison. And during that time, I started praying and thinking, uh, why this is happening to me? This is, uh, 
why 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 this is taking a place uh, and I start thinking about the history of the Jewish people how much they suffered in Europe and uh, now they come when they came to Palestine how the Palestinians actually welcomed them uh, uh, but I I made a conscientious decision that I will allow that experience in my life to be a person who will always work for justice and peace but also to to allow myself to feel the pain of the other uh, and that's been very powerful, you know, uh, after I came back from prison, people came to me and said, oh, we need to do this, we need to do that. I said, no, I'm not interested in, in our, any kind of violent struggle against Israel. I'm interested in one thing, a non-violent solution to the conflict. We need to find out how we can uh, find room for conversation, how we can engage e each other, how we can feel the pain of each other, how we can listen to the narrative of the other without judgment. And, and that's been very powerful for me. Uh, I come from a place of hurt, but that is empowering me to be able to, to listen to the other. And, and this came, became to me a center of my work, to work for justice and peace, no matter only just Palestine and Israel, but in any issue that is, is out of my comfort place. That narrative we talk about, when you're able to access your pain, you can better understand the pain of other people. Do you feel your, your faith has some influence in terms of how you approach that? Yeah, I mean, uh, my faith always has empowered me to be able to uh, talk about issues and difficult issues that I have not been able to, to face as a person. So my faith formation has been very important. It's, it's um, you know, I grew up in the church. I became very interested in church. I saw faith and religion as part of my identity, but also part of my resistant movement against issues of injustice. So uh, when I finished high school and I wanted to become a priest, and I was a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, so I went to my priest, I said, I want to become a priest. And he said, we need to speak to the patriarch. When you went to Jerusalem to speak to the patriarch, the patriarch was a Greek person. And he said to me, well, we don't have money now to send you to be educated, so you have, you have to wait. So I waited the first year, I waited the second year. Then I turned 19. I said, listen, I need to go and start my studies. And he said, well, we don't have money, so go home, get married, and come back and we'll ordain, ordain, ordain you a priest and we'll assign you in your home parish. I said, that is not acceptable to me. And at that time, I realized that all my life I was living under two occupations the Israeli occupation of Palestine, and the Greek occupation of the indigenous Palestinian church. Mm. So the whole church is under the Greek control. So they take our lands, they take our money, they take our income. And I went home to my father and said, I cannot live under two occupation, and I'm leaving the church. Mm. So I left the church, and then I joined the Lutheran church when I found a pastor who looked like me, who spoke my language, who understood my issues, a person who's committed and passionate about issues of justice, about um, resisting uh, the things that uh, impacting our life. And that's where I found home, in the Lutheran church. Was that hard for your family to take? It was. I mean, it was very difficult, especially all our life. We were in the Greek Orthodox church, but my father understood that for me as a person, I just couldn't stay in a place of injustice. What's it like coming from a place where Christianity is maybe the uh, more minority religion to a place where Christianity is the majority religion? I mean, is, is that a bit of a culture shock for you? Or? <laughs> well, it, you know, growing up back home, the Christian community is very small. It's, uh, when I was living there, it was 3%. Uh, 
in the Holy Land where Christianity started. Right. Now, actually, the population of Christians in the Middle East or in Palestine is only 1%. I'm talking about the area of the Palestinian Authority is 1%. So one day the Palestinians will be gone from the place where Christianity was born. When I came to this country, it is fascinating. I was invited all over the country to go and speak in churches, and I will speak. And the first question they will ask me, uh, when did you convert to Christianity? Assuming because I'm an Arab and Palestinian that I was Muslim and I converted. And my answer always was 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. So, so that's always been my... Uh, Good singer there. <laughs> my, yeah. Then I will tell them, guys, listen, look at me. This is how Jesus looked. He's not the blonde hair and the blue eyes and the Norwegian or Danish uh, Jesus. This is how Jesus looked. He was born in my town. He grew up where I grew up. I walked the streets where he walked. You know, it is to them is actually a cultural shock. Yeah. To see somebody who was born in Bethlehem, who, who just give them a completely different perspective in Christianity and Christ himself. It's an eye-opener for them. I noticed in an interview you talked about how you eventually were assigned to a seminary in Philadelphia. How, how, what prompted to move to America, given your focus on your people in Israel? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea was that we have a lot of families left uh, Palestine because mm. of the occupation, because of the uh, harsh living conditions. Many of them went to South America, many of them came to North America. And the church felt that our people have, do not have a place to belong to spiritually, and the bishop decided to send me here to um, minister to them, to open a church that we can continue to be connected to the people who left the Holy Land. So I was sent to Philadelphia to finish my master's degree. After I graduated, I was sent to Brooklyn, New York, to start uh, Salam Arabic Lutheran Church. And that you were assigned to Beirage specifically, right? Uh, yes, Beirage, where we have the largest growing and fastest growing Arab community, both Christians and Muslims. And the way I looked at this is uh, I am coming to my people in exile, people mm. who have left the Holy Land, who couldn't stay there because of the harsh living conditions, and they came looking for a better opportunity. But they didn't have a spiritual home, and I wanted to come and we continue to minister with them, to work with them, and keep them connected to their culture and to their heritage and to their spirituality. Well, I know you've done so many things in this community. You live in Diker Heights. You've, you know, done stuff with Arab American communities. You were, I think, a clergy liaison for the NYPD. Yes. And I think you most recently worked in the Jewish hospital. Yes. So outreach for the Arab American community. What has it been like serving this community, this district, uh, in the past 22 years? It has been a lot of fun. I mean, this yeah. is a great community, a uh, civic-minded community. Uh, there is a lot of organizations that care about the quality of life in this community. And when I came to this neighborhood, actually, I fell in love with it. And I felt uh, I don't want to just be a pastor limited to four walls of my church. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be engaged and involved in the community to serve in, many, in, in any capacity that I can. In a way, I wanted to make my presence known. I wanted to make sure that I'm bringing issues to the table that people decide not to speak about, especially about economic justice and racial justice, engagement and involvement of immigrants. So I, for the past 12 years, I have been on Community Board 10, volunteering and working and serving with other people from the community and uh, fighting for this community to make sure that the quality of life continue to be great. People are welcomed. People are treated with dignity and respect. I became a clergy liaison to the NYBD because I felt we need a, uh, to facilitate a good conversation between our members of our community who come from the Middle East, who not necessarily have a good 
positive relationship with the police back home and mm -hmm. they carry this package with them here and therefore they don't trust the police in this country. So you are, if you are an immigrant or person of color who is a, uh, a victim of a hate crime, you will be afraid to go to the police department and report it because you think it's still in the mentality of back home and the mindset of back home that you cannot trust the police and if you go to the police, you're going to be victimized all over again. So my, my whole reasoning was I can be a good bridge between the community and the police department to make sure to empower our community if they face hate crimes, if they are victims of any crime, they will be comfortable to go to the police department and report it. We don't want people in this community to live in the cracks of the society and to hide because of their ethnicity or their identity. That is, to me, is not acceptable. So what is your job specifically? Are you still with NYPD or you've put that aside as a clergy? Uh, I am still with the NYPD as a volunteer. As a volunteer. It's, <laughs> it's not a paid position, it's a volunteer position. Yeah. And I have been volunteering in many different like community board 10, the volunteering sure, with sure. the NYBD, I serve in many different uh, but boards. But specifically, what do you do as a clergy liaison? Beyond, the clergy liaison, yeah. my job is to bring cultural sensitivity to the police officers who come to serve in our district. So, for oh, example, okay. when we receive new cadets to come to serve at our precinct, I meet with them, I speak to them about the community, I speak about them about the cultural sensitivities, I take them around to meet with community leaders, we ride in the car with them so we can point places of importance like houses of worship. So it is kind of a cultural orientation about the community. What you can and you cannot do, the best approaches to the community, how to make the people feel welcome, and how you can make yourself approachable. So a person of color or an immigrant in this community will not be afraid from your presence, but they will see you as a strength for the community. What are some of the most difficult conversations or incidents you've had to deal with as a community organizer? Well, with the NYBD, we had the unwarranted surveillance of Muslims, and mm -hmm. that was a big challenge for us, and we needed to rise up and we needed to resist these unjust policies that victimized people from our community, spied on our community, and treated us as uh, criminals. This is not acceptable. We are citizens, we love this country like anybody else, and we should not come under surveillance because of an act of one individual who is not representative of the community or the religion. So that was one of the biggest issues that we needed to speak about, we needed to fight, we needed to resist, we needed to hold the police department accountable and responsible to our community, that we needed to be treated as equals with dignity and respect. For Community Board 10, uh, we have actually two major issues. One is the illegal drugs that destroying many of our families. We have a lot of young kids are overdosing and dying in our community. And the second thing is the illegal home conversion. I mean, a lot of people, their response when it comes to drug use is, you know, the war yeah. on drugs, you know, send more police. What, what, is, what would your approach be towards tackling drugs among youth? Yeah, I mean, when you speak about the drugs, it's not only about increasing the police presence. Mm -hmm. It's about providing drug counseling centers and get to the root of the problem, but engaging also families in the neighborhood to let them educate them, let them recognize the, daily, uh, the early uh, addiction of their children on the drugs, changing their behavior. So I'm not talking about more police presence. Yeah, we need some police, but more importantly, we need resources that can solve the problem. Have you noticed an increase in usage of drugs in, in this area? Or? Yes, I mean, the, the illegal drugs are flooding the neighborhood, uh, and it is uh, very cheap, available in every corner. Why, the heroin, why, is, why is that, you think? Uh, I don't know. It's coming from everywhere, flooding the area, and I'm not sure what, why, but it is very cheap quality. People are taking it, and they are overdosing and dying. Mm. Uh, and all starts, by the way, by the prescription of drugs. 
When you go to your doctor and doctor, you give you your pain medication, you get hooked up in the pain medication, then you go to the next stage. So we need to make sure also that the doctors in our community are held accountable and responsible to the drug prescriptions. I was the first one in this community, the first one in this community to hold the first town hall meeting to speak about this issue. I was the first one with community leaders to raise private funding to open the first drug counseling center in the neighborhood. So that is my legacy. That's the things that I have worked for. And the second thing is the illegal home conversion. We have greedy landlords who can come to our neighborhood and afford to buy a house for double the price because they can subdivide it and rent it illegally for mm. 10 families, which is impacting the quality of life in the neighborhood. They are taking advantage of undocumented families in the neighborhood where they are forced to live in a closet and pay high rents because they cannot improve their incomes. Uh, but they are living in unsafe conditions. God forbid there's a fire happens. Uh, the fire department will never be able to access them and go there to, to rescue them. The impact on our schools are also tremendous because of these greedy landlords. And actually, when I decided to run for city council, one of the commitments that I have made, that I will not take money from developers, lobbyists, or special interest groups. I needed to work with the people, for the people, and be accountable only to the people who live here and to the issues of justice that I'm passionate about. And I think you're the only council person running from your seat that hasn't taken money. Is that correct? As a candidate for city council in this district, I am by far the only candidate who made it very clear. I will not accept any money from developers, lobbyists, special interest and groups. And you've raised the most money, I think? If uh, I, I have been blessed to raise the most money among all the candidates, both Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. And this money came only from uh, working families, retired people, teachers, professionals, taxi drivers, students, people who never been engaged or involved in any campaign. They see the, um, the, my campaign is vital, important, and my candidacy is so important to them that people are given above and beyond. And when it comes to tackling illegal appropriation or usage of division of homes, what is the best way to tackle something like that? Well. We tried to work with the Department of Housing and we were not able to be successful because when you call and report uh, a legal activity that there is a house that's being illegally converted, they will go and knock on the door. If you don't open the door for them, they can do absolutely nothing. So we need to make sure the law is changed. There are certain situations where fire department and other resources can come into the area, recognize, see what's happening, and they will be able to come into the house. And if there is an illegal activity to convert a home, the landlord will be fined, heavy, hefty fines. So right for, now the law well, is Well, we have been working on this. Uh, we enacted a law a few weeks ago, but we've been working on this for years, Community Board 10 with our elected officials. But the law does not go all the way because part of it is to find the greedy landlords yes. who are doing these illegal conversions. But the flip of it, we need a housing that is affordable to the people who live here. Yeah. This neighborhood becoming unaffordable, not livable. A lot of the families are leaving the neighborhood. We have young families who are being uh, on the verge of becoming homeless because they cannot afford the rent. So, so it is not only speak about the illegal home conversion, mm -hmm. we need to speak about affordable housing. And when you speak about affordable housing, it has to be housing affordable to the people who live here, not in people coming from Upper East Manhattan to come and live in Beirich. That's not what I'm talking about. So it is uh, both ways to my campaign. I'm very curious, what prompted you to make that step over to f run for office, given you've been doing so much leadership work in the community? What made you feel like, I want to do it on a political level? 
Well, the reason I wanted to run for political office is to actually for two reasons. One, I was really inspired by Bernie Sanders, a person who ran, who but got us motivated, engaged, involved, who spoke about issues that matter and issues that resonated with us and issues that uh, uh, helped, made us as an Arab community to rise up and say, this is the person we are going to support. This is the person that who believe can fight for issues of justice that we care about. And also seeing somebody like Trump being elected to the presidency is, is a huge concern for me. Trump put all our civil liberties at jeopardy. We are being threatened as people of color, as immigrants in this country. And I think it is time for us to rise up and to continue to resist and to have diversity in our representation. I am very sad when I look at the democratic clubs in our area here. It is the same people who all look alike, who speak the same language, mm -hmm. who put the, their interests above the people who live here. And I said, you know, the status quo is not working and we need to make sure that we have representation that really represents everyone in the community. And when people start speaking to me, I got more engaged and involved and I thought that would be a different way in which, why, which I can continue to serve the community. And in fact, maybe most people don't know because people think of Bay Ridge as maybe a bit more conservative area compared to New York's a very blue state. But if I recall correctly, it voted for Bernie at a higher margin than Clinton in the Democratic Party, right? Well, people would like you, yeah, people would like you to think that Bay Ridge uh, is a conservative community. But mm -hmm. with that, what they don't know that the Bay Ridge has changed a lot. Hmm. And uh, in, during the last election, if you look at the New York Times maps of the districts, you will see that Bay Ridge went for Bernie and also Berridge went for Trump. So majority of the people who lived here voted for Bernie. So th that's an indication that the, it's not a conservative uh, neighborhood anymore. Uh, and the people who are conservative become a minority and people are here actually progressive, who care about progressive issues, pro care about inclusivity, protecting the rights of uh, uh, undocumented new immigrants, the LGBTQ community, uh, they care about passing legislation that protect the civil liberties of people who live here and people who really fight to make sure this city continue to be a welcoming city, to be a sanctuary city uh, where everybody treated with dignity and respect. We have a representation who in office right now who never rose up to, to, to fight and resist against the Trump you're, you're administration. You're saying your current, the current Our current, I mean, when we, the Muslim ban came out, all these officials were silent or even voted for it. Uh, so it is really horrendous to see that the people who are supposed to be looking out for us, the people that we elected in office, mm. the, they are the very ones who are against us. You mentioned that a lot of changes happening in Bay Ridge and Passport. Can you elaborate on those changes and how that's affected the politics of your work as an organizer? Well, uh, you know, the neighborhood is changing. We have the fastest growing community here is the Arab and the Muslim community. Next to that will be the Asian community, specifically the Chinese community. They are moving in. Now, we don't know the exact numbers because, unfortunately, for the past 14 years, we did not have a primary. That's how sad it is. So this, is election, this election is really important because it's going to give us a clear picture about what's happening in the community. So I am, in a way, excited for September 12 because that will be a big indication about the community and where we are. Can you elaborate, just excuse my ignorance, That's there's okay. no census because there's no primary? Well, our councilman has not been challenged in the primaries for uh, the past 14 years. I, I see, I see. Uh, and unfortunately, because we have a strong political establishment who were able to keep him in office, but the community also suffered because of that. We l received the lowest funding in the city. There's 51 districts in the city. We are number 50. 
out of 51 in funding. We have a councilman who voted against the Community Safety Act. Hmm. I mean, you have the largest Arab and Muslim community in your district and you go and vote against the Community Safety Act to protect people of color and immigrants. So I think the reason people voted for Bernie in the last election in this district because they are getting sick and tired with the establishment. And they are sending a clear message, the status quo does not work anymore. And by establishing, you clearly also mean the Democratic Party. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Democratic Party, I believe, in this area has failed because they are unable to engage in new people in the political process. And we're talking about, I mean, I lived in this area for the past 22 years. I am a person who is active in community board 10 for 12 years. I'm a clergy resident to NYBD. I fought to keep the Fort Hamilton Army base open. I never in my life was approached by a Democrat to join a club. Hmm. Because it's an exclusive club. So my, during my candidacy running for city council, we are bringing people to the Democratic uh, Party. We have registered over 500 new people. These are first-time voters. They are the first time getting engaged and involved in the political system. They are from different uh, immigrant groups. So if you want to be truthful about your candidacy and about the community, you have to be active, not wait for the people to serve you. You are elected to serve the people. So obviously we don't know the exact demographics in Bay we Ridge, don't. but I, I was reading somewhere that it's still a large majority of people are white, if I recall correctly. And the Arab community is the fastest growing, but it's certainly not the majority at this point. It's not. And the white people who live here, with, through my experience going out and knocking on doors, mm -hmm. they are progressive. When I knock on their door and an 82-year-old man opens the door and say, my name is Khadr al I am a Democrat running for city council, then he said, what kind of Democrat are you? And oh. I said, well, uh, I was endorsed by the New Kings Democrats. Okay, I was endorsed by the Democratic Socialist of America. Okay, where do you want me to sign? These are my people. Now you are talking. <laughs> so when you have an 82-year-old man who was born and raised in Bay Ridge, yep. who knows that Democratic Socialist of America is something that is viable, and he wants to sign my petition so I can be on the ballot for in September 12th, it's an indication that this community has changed, and people here are, are, are really more progressive than we uh, people think they are. What role do you feel being a clergyman running in this campaign? I mean, you're, I think you're one of the very few clergymen who actually, man and women, who's actually run for office. The number one, I have to always be conscientious not to allow my faith to interfere with the decisions that I am making for my district and my city. I need to make sure that my faith is stay independent and my political work is stay independent as well. Of course, my faith will influence decisions that I make from the perspective of justice issues because my faith, I see it as a catalyst for justice. And mm -hmm. if I am unable to do and work for justice issues, that means my faith is dead. That's how I see it. When you knock on doors, are you always wearing this collar that you're wearing right now? When I knock on doors, I wear my collar. Are people surprised? Like, what is this minister doing yes, outside my door? Yes, I mean, you should door? see the looks in their face. And the moment I tell them my name is, my name is Khadr Al-Yatim, I'm a Democrat running for... Really? So, yeah. so it is... Uh, and sometimes people think, like, uh, I'm knocking to try and... Uh, no, 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 I'm not here because of the church. So, <laughs> I'm trying to so convert it's just, them. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's so funny, the reactions. But... Uh, you know, people see my picture in the newspaper, they received my mailer. So when I knock on the door and they open the door, they say, oh, you they are recognize here. you. Yeah, so they recognize me and actually they are happy to see me. Mm. The, so. the other 
affiliation you have that's a bit unique is that you're endorsed also by the Democratic Socialists of America. And have you gotten some heat from that, from your Republican opponents, saying that you are out of touch with American politics? Uh, being a Christian who believes in Jesus, I believe Jesus was the leader of the uh, socialist movement in the world. He fought for economic justice, for racial justice. He fought for a better health care. He performed some miracles himself, too, so that doesn't hurt. But, but I mean, when we talk about Christianity, Christianity is about taking care of everyone. When we talk about no one is left behind, it doesn't mean that we just keep going. And No, we need to fight for everyone. We need to make sure people, we take care of the poor, people living in poverty. We need to make sure when there is injustice, we are present, we are fighting, we are resisting. We are lifting people up, we are empowering people. So I look at uh, the Democratic Socialists of America uh, and I look at my values uh, as a Christian person, there's a lot of commonalities there. There's a lot of issues that importance to me that we continue to fight for. You know, but sometimes people try to label uh, socialism with communism and this and that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested about how we can translate the things that we believe in, the core values that we stand for, to make sure it's helping the people that we care about. That's it. Why? Why the socialist label versus just I'm for economic justice or versus just being for workers' rights? Why go that far? Some people are scared of doing that. They might share your views, but they don't want the label per se. Well, you know, I'm, I am very proud of my identity and who I am. Uh, so that's never been a problem. But when I was introduced to the Democratic Socialists of America and I start talking and meeting. And how long ago was that? Uh, it's been a few months already, mm -hmm. uh, about five months. But I, I start learning, seeing more and more and more of the commonalities. And I wanted to belong to a place, and I never found a place where I can belong to as a, an activist. So the so, uh, Democratic Social of America actually provided that safe space for me in which I can say this is a, a group I can function within and through to, to make change in the political system in America. Can you elaborate a bit on that? What, what about it felt like a home in a way that other activist spaces... I mean, as I told you, like we have democratic clubs here in our district. They are exclusive clubs. They are not transparent. They are not diverse. Uh, mostly white men. White, exactly. And I wanted to find a place where it's diverse, transparent, who put the, the needs of the community and the need of the country before their own needs. And you encountered them during the course of your campaign, or was it before the announcement? Uh, well, before, uh, mm -hmm. a lot more during my campaign. Oh. Uh, and, you know, the endorsement of uh, the DSA for my campaign has been a great uh, affirmation of the things that I'm, I've been doing in this community for a long time and the things that I will continue to do in, the, in this community. Since I announced the endorsement of the DSA, I came under war, especially from the Republicans. Of course, the Democrats stayed quiet about uh, the racial, racial profiling of my campaign throughout that time. And even one of the Demo uh, Republican candidates posted something today saying, help me in my campaign against El Yatim because of the DSA endorsement. So uh, that's, that's the kind of uh, things that uh, I have to deal with. But that person, uh, I mean, he's making his whole platform against me. I guess that's the only way he can get some name That's how you know you're, doing, you're getting attraction uh, and steam when they yeah, start targeting yeah. you. So, but at the end of the day, I think we need to continue to be focused. And uh, I hope I will be elected on September 12th in the primaries. And when I go to city council, we are going to fight for these core values that we share myself and the DSA.
to switch notes a little bit, you mentioned racial profiling of your campaign that, and something Democrats were silent about. Could you elaborate on that? No, I mean, uh, it, it has been very interesting. For example, I have this Jewish guy who volunteers on my campaign, and he was member of the Birch Dems. I'm going to say this very honestly. And he came to volunteer on my campaign. So I got a little bit suspicious, like, why? You have a candidate from your club running. Why don't you support him? And he said because he did something called dog whistling. He told me that an Arab cannot win in this district. And that made me my decision to come and volunteer in your campaign. When I go and meet with unions, they say, well, we heard the, an Arab cannot win in that district. And I say, well, they said the same thing about a black man cannot win the presidency of the United States. But he did. So, so this is becoming more and more, and I see it more and more. I mean, we have the Republicans writing about me, the leftist Palestinian radical cleric. That's yeah. how I'm <laughs> radical being cleric. Wow. Yeah, but leftist yeah. Palestinian radical cleric and using the word cleric for a Lutheran pastor because yeah. they know that the word is negative yeah. in the minds of white Americans. And usually and they, associate with Islam. Yeah, and uh, associate me with Islam, which is nothing wrong with Islam, that uh, we should not be talking that way. Uh, but that's he, what he's doing. He's profiling me in a way to make the white American thing. Here's a leftist Palestinian radical cleric. So these are the things I'm seeing, reading. Uh, it's in, uh, people, uh, it's in the newspapers, in their pages. Uh, I can show it to you on my own Facebook. That's the, what I have to deal with. So the ind endorsement of the DSA, uh, to me, it, it, it is a phenomenal thing that I was able to get it. And one of the Republican candidates was asking the Democrats to ask me to denounce the endorsement, which in their wildest dreams will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> How how old how you said your oldest child you have four kids I have four kids the oldest is in her early twenties the youngest is it still in high school she just turned thirteen thirteen uh, two days ago uh, what's it like to raise a family in this community are you if you do gain office are you worried a bit for how it might impact your family and its profile in the community well uh, you know the most important thing was for me in the beginning before I announced was to speak to my wife and to my children and to prepare them mentally that uh, running for office you go and to read things and hear things and uh, listen to things that you never learned about your father mm. and this is politics people are going to use every single thing to throw at me and it is very interesting I mean I will be sitting with my son who is 17 years old and we read these articles then we read the comments that people writing on these comments on these articles and it has like what <laughs> what you're writing where are you getting this from so i'm a person who've been living in this community for the past 22 years i have very clean record they have nothing against me so they're trying to come up with things that does not exist or has no value to write about me but uh, you know what? It's politics. There is nothing against me that they can use, and that's, I think, what's killing them. Just the fact that I raised the most money, the fact I collected the most signatures, being a first-time candidate who doesn't have a huge politi any political establishment behind me, who never been in a, on a, uh, who never been elected official or been on a payroll of elected official, and I'm doing the best among all of these people who have been endorsed by every single union, who have been endorsed by every single political official in the city. And here I am. I have been endorsed by the DSA and the New Kings uh, Democrats, the League of Independent Theater, uh, the Muslim Democratic Club of New York, 
and the New York City Immigrant Coalition, these are the people who endorsed me, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't have people who came out and endorsed me. I don't have huge unions who came out and endorsed me. And with all this, I am doing better than anybody else in this race. I think that's a huge indication that people in this area are getting sick and tired of the status quo and politics as usual. What legacy do you hope to leave for your children when you think about them growing older and the impact you have in their lives? Well, I want to make sure that my kids are proud of uh, who I am and the work that I am going to do for the community. But also I want them to see their father, a person who is very proud of his identity. My identity is that I am an Arab, American, Palestinian, Christian, Lutheran, pastor. This is my identity. I am so proud of it. I will not allow anybody to take that away from me. I will not compromise it for anyone. And uh, I want my kids also to grow up in this neighborhood, proud of who they are and proud of their father who is uh, making a lot of sacrifices to serve the people of this district. Thank you very much. You're welcome very much. Thank you. That was Reverend Kadir Al-Yatim, pastor at Salam Arabic Lutheran Church and Democratic candidate for District 43 in Brooklyn. That was a really energetic conversation. Um, I am still struck by his Nelson Mandela s story about his time in solitary confinement and how in the midst of being kind of literally tortured, he chose to empathize with the pain of those who were oppressing him, which is pretty, well, incredible. So... Again, you're listening to Religious Socialism, a production of the DSA. This podcast was produced by the wonderful Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah New. Tune in next month for more interviews about religion, politics, and social justice. If you like this, you know, help us out by rating us on iTunes. That would be great. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Religious Socialism Podcast, where you can send any comments or feedback. Thank you for listening.